Section 11 of Emily of New Moon by Lucy M. Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 11. There was a great deal of suppressed excitement in school during the last week in June, the cause thereof being Rhoda Stewart's birthday party, which was to take place early in July. The amount of heart burning was incredible. Who was to be invited? That was the great question. There were some who knew they wouldn't, and some who knew they would, but there were more who were in truly horrible suspense. Everybody paid court to Emily, because she was Rhoda's dearest friend, and might conceivably have some voice in the selection of guests. Jenny Strang even went as far as bluntly to offer Emily a beautiful white box with a gorgeous picture of Queen Victoria on the cover to keep her pencils in, if she would procure her an invitation. Emily refused the bribe and said grandly that she could not interfere in such a delicate matter. Emily really did put on some airs about it. She was sure of her invitation. Rhoda had told her about the party weeks before and had talked it all over with her. It was to be a very grand affair. A birthday cake covered with pink icing and adorned with ten tall pink candles, ice cream and oranges, and written invitations on pink gilt-edged notepaper, sent through the post office, this last being an added touch of exclusiveness. Emily dreamed about that party day and night, and had her present all ready for Rhoda, a pretty hair ribbon which Aunt Laura had brought from Shrewsbury. On the first Sunday in July, Emily found herself sitting beside Jenny Strang in Sunday school for the opening exercises. Generally, she and Rhoda sat together, but now Rhoda was sitting three seats ahead with a strange little girl, a very gay and gorgeous little girl, dressed in blue silk, with a large flower-wreathed leghorn hat on her elaborately curled hair, white lacework stockings on her pudgy legs, and a bang that came clean down to her eyes. Not all her fine feathers could make a really fine bird of her, however. She was not in the least pretty, and her expression was cross and contemptuous. Who is the girl sitting with Rhoda? whispered Emily. Oh, she's Muriel Porter, answered Jenny. She's a townie, you know. She's come out to spend her vacation with her aunt, Jane Beatty. I hate her. If I was her, I'd never dream of wearing blue with a skin as dark as hers. But the porters are rich, and Muriel thinks she's a wonder. They say Rhoda and her have been awful thick since she came out. Rhoda's always chasing after anybody she thinks is up in the world. Emily stiffened up. She was not going to listen to disparaging remarks about her friends. Jenny felt the stiffening and changed her note. Anyway, I'm glad I'm not invited to Rhoda's old party. I wouldn't want to go when Muriel Porter will be there, putting on her airs. How do you know you're not invited? wondered Emily. Why, the invitations went out yesterday. Didn't you get yours? No. Did you get your mail? Yes, Cousin Jimmy got it. Well, maybe Mrs. Beecher forgot to give it to him. Likely you'll get it tomorrow. Emily agreed that it was likely, but it 
queer cold sensation of dismay had invaded her being, which was not removed by the fact that after Sunday school, Rhoda strutted away with Muriel Porter without a glance at anyone else. On Monday, Emily herself went to the post office, but there was no pink envelope for her. She cried herself to sleep that night, but did not quite give up hope until Tuesday had passed. Then she faced the terrible truth that she, she, Emily Bird Starr of New Moon, had not been invited to Rhoda's party. The thing was incredible. There must be a mistake somewhere. Had Cousin Jimmy lost the invitation on the road home? Had Rhoda's grown-up sister who wrote the invitations overlooked her name? Had Emily's unhappy doubts were forever resolved into bitter certainty by Jenny, who joined her as she left the post office. There was a malicious light in Jenny's beady eyes. Jenny liked Emily quite well by now, in spite of their passage at arms on the day of their first meeting, but she liked to see her pride humbled for all that. So, you're not invited to Rhoda's party after all? No, admitted Emily. It was a very bitter moment for her. The Murray pride was sorely wrung, and, beneath the Murray pride, something else had been grievously wounded, but was not yet quite dead. Well, I call it dirt mean, said Jenny, quite honestly sympathetic in spite of her secret satisfaction. After all the fuss she's made over you too, but that's Rhoda Stewart all over. Deceitful is no name for her. I don't think she's deceitful, said Emily, loyal to the last ditch. I believe there's some mistake about my not being invited. Jenny is dead. Then you don't know the reason. Why? Beth Beatty told me the whole story. Muriel Porter hates you, and she just up and told Rhoda that she would not go to her party if you were invited. And Rhoda was so crazy to have a town girl there that she promised she wouldn't invite you. Muriel Porter doesn't know me, gasped Emily. How can she hate me? Jenny grinned impishly. I can tell you, she's dead stuck on Fred Stewart. And Fred knows it, and he teased her by praising you up to her. Told her you were the sweetest girl in Blairwater, and he meant to have you for his girl when you were a little older. And Muriel was so mad and jealous, she made Rhoda leave you out. I wouldn't care if I was you. A Murray of New Moon is away above such trash. As for Rhoda not being deceitful, I can tell you she is. Why, she told you that she didn't know that snake was in the box when it was her thought of doing it in the first place. Emily was too crushed to reply. She was glad that Jenny had to switch off down her own lane and leave her alone. She hurried home, afraid that she could not keep the tears back until she got there. Disappointment about the party. Humiliation over the insult. All was swallowed up in the anguish of a faith betrayed and a trust outraged. Her love of Rhoda was quite dead now, and Emily smarted to the core of her soul with the pain of the blow that had killed it. It was a child's tragedy, and all the more bitter for that, since there was no one to understand. 
Aunt Elizabeth told her that birthday parties were all nonsense, and that the Stuarts were not a family that the Murrays had ever associated with, and even Aunt Laura, though she petted and comforted, did not realise how deep and grievous the hurt had been. So deep and grievous that Emily could not even write about it to her father, and had no outlet for the violence of emotion that racked her being. The next Sunday Rhoda was alone in Sunday school, Muriel Porter having been suddenly summoned back to town by her father's illness, and Rhoda looked sweetly towards Emily, but Emily sailed past her with the head held very high, and scorn on every lineament. She would never have anything to do with Rhoda Stewart again. She couldn't. She despised Rhoda more than ever for trying to get back with her, now that the town girl for whom she had sacrificed her was gone. It was not for Rhoda, she mourned. It was for the friendship that had been so dear to her. Rhoda had been dear, and sweet on the surface at least, and Emily had found intense happiness in their companionship. Now it was gone, and she could never, never love or trust anybody again. There lay the sting. It poisoned everything. Emily was of a nature which, even as a child, did not readily recover from or forget such a blow. She moped about New Moon, lost her appetite, and grew thin. She hated to go to Sunday school because she thought the other girls exulted in her humiliation and her estrangement from Rhoda. Some slight feeling of the kind there was, perhaps, but Emily morbidly exaggerated it. If two girls whispered or giggled together, she thought she was being discussed and laughed at. If one of them walked home with her, she thought it was out of condescending pity because she was friendless. For a month, Emily was the most unhappy little being in Blairwater. I think I must have been put under a curse of birth, she reflected disconsolately. Aunt Elizabeth had a more prosaic idea to account for Emily's languor and lack of appetite. She had come to the conclusion that Emily's heavy masses of hair took from her strength, and that she would be much stronger and better if it were cut off. With Aunt Elizabeth, to decide was to act. One morning she coolly informed Emily that her hair was to be shingled. Emily could not believe her ears. You don't mean that you are going to cut off my hair, Aunt Elizabeth, she exclaimed. Yes, I mean exactly that, said Aunt Elizabeth firmly. You have entirely too much hair, especially for hot weather. I feel sure that is why you have been so miserable lately. Now, I don't want any crying but Emily could not keep the tears back. Don't cut it all off, she pleaded. Just cut a good big bang. Lots of the girls have their hair banged clean from the crown of their heads. That would take half my hair off, and the rest won't take too much strength. There will be no bangs here, said Aunt Elizabeth. I've told you so often enough. I'm going to shingle your hair close all over your head for the hot weather. You'll be thankful to me some day for it. Emily felt anything but thankful just then. It's my one beauty, she sobbed. It and my lashes. I suppose you want to cut off my lashes too. Aunt Elizabeth did distrust those long, up-curled fringes of Emily's, which were an inheritance from the girlish stepmother, and too unmurry like to be approved. But she had no designs against them. The hair must go, however, and she curtly bade Emily wait there without any fuss until she got the scissors. 
Emily waited, quite hopelessly. She must lose her lovely hair, the hair her father had been so proud of. It might grow again in time, if Aunt Elizabeth let it, but that would take years, and meanwhile what a fright she would be. Aunt Laura and Cousin Jimmy were out. She had no one to back her up. This horrible thing must happen. Aunt Elizabeth returned with the scissors. They clicked suggestively as she opened them. That click, as if by magic, seemed to loosen something, some strange, formidable power in Emily's soul. She turned deliberately around and faced her aunt. She felt her brows drawing together in an unaccustomed way. She felt an uprush as from unknown depths of some irresistible surge of energy. Aunt Elizabeth, she said, looking straight at the lady with the scissors, my hair is not going to be cut off. Let me hear no more of this. An amazing thing happened to Aunt Elizabeth. She turned pale. She laid the scissors down. She looked aghast for one moment at the transformed or possessed child before her. And then for the first time in her life, Elizabeth Murray turned tail and fled, literally fled, to the kitchen. What is the matter, Elizabeth? cried Laura, coming in from the cookhouse. I saw father looking from her face, gasped Elizabeth, trembling. And she said, let me hear no more of this, just as he always said it, his very words. Emily overheard her and ran to the sideboard mirror. She had had, while she was speaking, an uncanny feeling of wearing somebody else's face instead of her own. It was vanishing now, but Emily caught a glimpse of it as it left. The Murray look, she supposed. No wonder it had frightened Aunt Elizabeth. It frightened herself. She was glad that it had gone. She shivered. She fled to her garret retreat and cried, but somehow she knew that her hair would not be cut. Nor was it. Aunt Elizabeth never referred to the matter again, but several days passed before she meddled much with Emily. It was a rather curious fact that from that day, Emily ceased to grieve over her lost friend. The matter had suddenly become of small importance. It was as if it had happened so long ago that nothing, save the mere emotionless memory of it, remained. Emily speedily regained appetite and animation, resumed her letters to her father, and found that life tasted good again, not only by a mysterious prescience that Aunt Elizabeth had it in for her in regard to her defeat in the matter of her hair, and would get even sooner or later. Aunt Elizabeth got even within the week. Emily was to go on an errand to the shop. It was a broiling day, and she had been allowed to go barefooted at home, but now she must put on boots and stockings. Emily rebelled. It was too hot. It was too dusty. She couldn't walk that long half-mile in buttoned boots. Aunt Elizabeth was inexorable. No Murray must be seen barefooted away from home. And on they went. But the minute Emily was outside the new moon gate, she deliberately sat down, took them off, stowed them in a hole in the dyke, and pranced away barefooted. She did her errand and returned with an untroubled conscience. How beautiful the world was! How softly blue was the great round blair water! How glorious that miracle of buttercups in the wet field below Lofty John's bush! At sight of it, Emily stood stock still and composed a verse of poetry. 
Buttercup, flower of the yellow dye, I see thy cheerful face, greeting and nodding everywhere, careless of time and place. In boggy field or public road, or cultured gardens pale, we sport your pickles satin soft, and down within the vale. So far so good, but Emily wanted another verse to round the poem off properly, and the divine afflatus seemed gone. She walked dreamily home, and by the time she reached New Moon, she had got her verse, and was reciting it to herself, with an agreeable sense of completion. You cast your loveliness around, where'er you chance to be, and you shall always, Buttercup, be a flower dear to me. Emily felt very proud. This was her third poem, and undoubtedly her best. Nobody could say it was very blank. She must hurry up to the garret and write it on a letter ball. but Aunt Elizabeth was confronting her on the steps. Emily, where are your boots and stockings? Emily came back from Cloudland with a disagreeable jolt. She had forgotten all about boots and stockings. In the hole by the gate, she said flatly, You went to the store barefooted? Yes. After I had told you not to? This seemed to Emily a superfluous question, and she did not answer it. But Aunt Elizabeth's turn had come. End of section 11. Recording by Leanne Fortune.